Hey, welcome to Docs and Jocks. This is Dr. Dan bringing you your sports medicine radio show, Docs and Jocks. Great to have you with us today. If you're just joining our show for the very first time, what we do here is we talk about the sports entertainment world from a sports medicine niche. In other words, we talk about what's going on in the uh, world of sports with regards to maybe injuries of your favorite player, how your favorite team's doing with regards to injuries. We not only talk about those injuries that occur, but we talk about what those injuries might entail. How long are they going to last? How long? How severe is it? And uh, what the typical time frame is, what exactly is involved in those types of injuries as far as anatomy and those types of things. My day job's at Texas Sport and Spine where I take care of Weekend warriors, professional athletes, college athletes, uh, young athletes of all ages, basically doing what I do here on air uh, as part of my day job is just uh, deal with regular patients. So I've been a sports medicine physician for 20-plus uh, years, so it's been great doing that as well as now bringing that to you here on air and Docs and Jocks. Uh, this week I am joined by my co-host, uh, Brandon Hawk, and Brandon is uh, no uh, stranger to our show here. Brandon's been my long-term is, uh producer here on Docs and Jocks, as well as he was a former athletic trainer with the Dallas Cowboys and the Texas Tech Red Raiders. Brandon, thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, Dr. Dan. Thanks for having me. We sometimes refer to him as Hawk as his name, so if you hear me say Hawk, <laughs> that's who, the one of the same Brandon Hawk. So, got a lot of great guests today, Hawk. We're going to be talking to former Major League Baseball player and uh, manager Jim Snyder, who was the manager of the Mariners and played with the uh, Minnesota Twins back in the day. So talk a little Jim Snyder baseball. It'll be fun doing that. Coming off of a great World Series, we're going to be talking to a physical therapist named Ashley Blakely. Ashley is uh, does a different type of technique. It's a uh, fascial release or fascial realignment technique, which is really kind of caught in caught a fire here lately with a lot of professional athletes on trying to help players get better from different injuries and keep them on the field. And then we're going to have a, se- a segment with Tracy Munton, who's a mental strength coach. She's also my lovely wife, who is our mental strength coach here at the Forge uh, Sports Training, which is located just outside of our radio booth here, where a lot of young uh, individuals right now are out doing their sports training. But we'll be talking to her about what she does on a daily basis on trying to help people with maybe like sports anxiety. We watched the World Series this year, Game 7. Can you imagine being a Game 7 and you're up there and you've got to win it for your team, how that felt for you, Darvish, the pitcher, how it felt for the batters trying to play. We're going to be talking about sports anxiety. Is it normal to have sports anxiety when you're playing? Is it something that needs to be treated? Is it something that you can preempt and get seen by a strength and conditioning a mental strength coach like Tracy Mutton. We'll be talking about that and more here on Docs and Jocks. Remember, you can always listen to our show anytime, anywhere by going to our iTunes app, Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X. You can also listen to our show as and be part of our social media on Docs and Jocks uh, by going to DocsandJocks.com. And there you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, you name it. We'd love to be part of our that show that way as well. And you can even email us your questions. Go to DocsandJocks.com, contact us, and you can send us your question. We'd love to be part of our show that way. We'll be right back with your sports medicine radio show, Docs and Jocks, after a short commercial break. You're listening to Guy Talk, live from the Sport Clips Haircuts locker room. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, my girlfriend beat me playing one-on-one. Ooh, sounds like you need to hit up a Sport Clips for an awesome haircut experience and some quality man time. I don't know. My girlfriend always takes me to her salon. Nonsense. Be your own man and get a great haircut in a guy-friendly place from stylists who know what guys need. You may be right. Sure I'm right. Now grab your Y chromosome, get down to Sport Clips, and ask for the MVP. Sport Clips. It's good to be a guy. No one burns calories like Firehouse Subs. Introducing our hearty and flavorful under 500 calorie menu. Steaming hot sriracha beef, hook and ladder light, turkey cranberry, and more. Six new subs, four new salads, overflowing with flavor under 500 calories. And starting at only $5.49. Under 500 calories never tasted so hearty and flavorful. 
Firehouse Subs. One bite, one taste, you're hooked. Welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. This is Dr. Dane, your longtime sports medicine physician, talking about what's going on in the sports medicine world. And then one of the things we do here, Hawk, is we talk about uh, maybe your favorite player that goes down, and then there's a big one this week. Uh, we come out of uh, Abilene, Texas. Our show is broadcast out of there, out, actually out of the Forge Sports Training Facility. And uh, one of the big injuries to the, one of our favorite Texans is Deshaun Watson of the Houston Texans goes down this week. He's the quarterback, probably one of the best young quarterbacks in all the NFL. Man, it was felt like he was really going to turn them around this year and help them get back into the playoff status, which everybody kind of predicted him. You lose J.J. Watt, obviously that doesn't help. But Deshaun Watson was hopefully going to be uh, good enough to get him over the hump. They're only a game back. Even though they're three and four, they're only a game back of Tennessee and Jacksonville. And so, you know, they had a hope. But now he ruptures his ACL. And your anterior crucial ligament is the big ligament in your knee that stabilizes the knee from both rotating too far and also from sliding, slipping forward and back. And that ACL ligament, when it's uh, ruptured, it makes it very difficult long-term to not have bad knee arthritis if you don't have it fixed. So a guy that's very athletic, who's going to be playing a lot, you're going to go in and have a reconstructed ACL. And uh, it's just sad to see a young player like that, Hawk, go down in the prime of his career, especially when it's, you're talking about your favorite team like the Houston Texans. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You know, last week they played the Seattle uh, – can't even think of their name. Seahawks. Seahawks. Goodness. <laughs> they played the Seahawks, who's well known for their secondary, yeah. you know, pass defense, and Richard Sherman and those guys. And they pretty much put him on a pedestal saying, yeah. this guy is going to be phenomenal. We right. face the best of the best, and this guy's one of them. So yeah. pretty sad to see. Yeah, and then we were talking about an anterior crucial ligament. It's a non-contact injury. Like, well, how do you have a non-contact anterior crucial ligament injury? And it's really not all that uncommon. You can have a traumatic one where someone runs into your leg and it pushes it out in such a form that it puts so much stress on the ligament. Remember, ligaments are what tie one bone to the next bone so it can rupture the ligament just from the force of the hit. Or you can just have that same force. There's so much force generated through your knee that oftentimes you come down and land in such a way that your knee buckles in. We call that a genuvalgus move of your knee. But your knee buckles in. Your foot's usually a little externally rotated or your your uh, big toes pointed, you know, not midline of your body but out away from your body. And so you land with your foot externally rotated. Your knee buckles in. The player feels a loud pop. It's also usually the move you do when you're cutting or trying to get away from somebody real fast. The knee pops as the ligament goes and then as it's as you fall down due to the discomfort your knee starts swelling really big and uh, so if you feel a, if you're running you're cutting you feel a pop you fall down your knee swells real big and you feel like it's unstable when you're walking that's typically an anterior crucial ligament injury but it's really uh, hawk and i hawk's been an athletic trainer with the dallas cowboys and texas tech red raiders i've been a team physician with uh, multiple colleges uh, even at the professional level and then as well as um Watched tons of high school football. I've been a team physician at the high school level for years and years. And uh, I have seen more non-contact ACL injuries than I've seen contact in my career by a pretty good measure, actually. How about you, Hawk? Yeah, you know, I think most of mine have been in games, contact injury, or I guess they could be non-contact where they come down from catching a ball. And like you said, that that knee goes in, that valgus force. I was going to ask you, Dr. Dan, is there for you know the head coach Bill O'Brien? He's got to be thinking, "Gosh, what did we do wrong in practice to create this?" Is there a practice regimen a coach can come up with that can help prevent something like this? There are preventable, or there are programs that are prevention ACL prevention programs, and they're oftentimes seen in girl sports or implemented with your girl teens because girl injuries to the ACL are more common than guys. 
just because of the way they have a little bit of wider pelvis. There's a little bit more of that genuvalgus uh, motion already set in their knee than, than most guys. Think about guys who are a little bit knock-kneed, girls are a little bit, I mean, sorry, guys are a little bit bow-legged, girls are a little bit knock-kneed. That's just kind of the general yeah. rule. But, yeah, no, we see it in uh, girls' soccer players. Uh, we see it in basketball teams. And so a lot of times coaches will begin these programs where you try and teach people how to land correctly. So they try and stabilize the knee and help them learn when they jump and they land how to have your balance over the top of your knee as opposed to letting your knee buckle in. And there are ACL prevention programs. If your team has a problem with that or if you want to not have a problem with that, I would highly recommend looking at that. I know University of Cincinnati had a big program. There's several out there that are really well-known. But it takes effort. You don't build strength overnight. Just exercise physiology says that if I'm going to start a strengthening program today, if I start those exercises, it takes about six weeks before I truly build strength. Now, you can get better at the exercise, but that's just because your brain is learning the activity better. But to truly build strength, break down muscle, build it up, break down muscle, build it up. Over time, the muscle gets bigger. We call that hypertrophy. And then you get more strength through those fibers. That takes time. So if you're going to do this, you don't start it in the season when you have an ACL injury. You start it in the off season, so yeah. that when you get in season, you're you're ready to go. You've already got that scaffolding built up, and you're ready to stabilize. I guess preventative you know. is the big word there. Preventative, yeah. <laughs> An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, is the old saying. But you, it, it really is true that if I saw a generalized run of my team starting to have more and more ACL injuries or more and more knee injuries, looking into an ACL prevention program is probably really really uh, wise. If even if I started it with my team not having had any ACL injuries, it's probably even wiser. I mean, you don't want to wait. I've always said, like, why do baseball players wait to wear the, the guard in front of their face until yeah. after they get hit? That doesn't make as much sense as the guy who wears it before he gets hit, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, and you saw Tom Savage, the guy who's going to have to step oh, up, yeah. come out and say a lot there's of no replacing yeah. Deshaun Watson. And, you know, Deshaun Watson's dealt with some injuries before in October of 2014. Uh, he broke his hand and missed a pretty good amount of the season, but – Obviously, this is going to take him out for the rest of the year. Just a huge blow to the Texans. Yeah, you take out your best offensive player, arguably. Probably, I, mean, I don't even know if there's any argument about that with the Houston Texans. <laughs> and then you take out your definitely your best player on defense, J.J. Watt. And now, oh. man, you've lost your number one scary factor on the line, and you've lost your number one threat from the offensive standpoint. It makes that season look pretty dreadful right now for the Houston Texans. That said, we saw Tom Brady a few years ago go out. Jimmy Garoppolo comes in and has a great uh, season in uh, his absence. With uh, I think Tom Brady had his ACL ruptured ex as well. So you can have a guy step up and play great, and maybe that's Tom Savage's role now. If there's a silver lining for Tom Savage, he gets to play in the NFL right now to prove what he's worth. And I do have, uh, I guess, a previous stat for you here. Uh, in 2014, that same year he broke his hand, uh, Deshaun Watson actually played a game with a torn ACL. Did he really? Yeah, I just found that out. He, uh, he injured – his knee, they just thought he tweaked his knee the week before against Georgia Tech, and they said he had an LCL strain, which you can talk to listeners yeah. with that is. And then uh, the following week, uh, he played. He started the game and uh, actually finished the game, and then after the game was revealed that Deshaun Watson played the game with a torn ACL and went surgery, and uh, he came back for the game against Oklahoma, the bowl game. Is that the same knee he had this time? Do you know to say know which that, knee it is? That's what I was kind of wondering. It didn't say right or left. So. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be curious to see. Yeah, yeah. You are more prone if you've had an ACL injury on one side to have it on the other side as well. And the reason is probably whatever your makeup is that makes you likely to, you know, to have that ACL injury in that knee. 
you oftentimes have a lot of those same anatomical features in the other knee that makes you likely to have it there as well. So people who've had an ACL rupture on the right side are a little bit higher risk or incidence of an ACL rupture on their left side. So anyway, but once you have it reconstructed, once your ACL has been, you know, you've, you've had it done, it doesn't make that knee any higher likelihood of having it done had you not had that done. So you can still tear your graft or tear, tear that as well. But it's, it's um, basically these guys are so good. Our orthopedic surgery colleagues are so good at doing ACL reconstructions now. They made it one of those surgeries where if you have a bad outcome, it's like so rare, you know. Yeah. It's like make a big deal of it. But, yeah, no, they do really, really good jobs. There's a lot of great breakthroughs in orthopedic surgery that has been amazing in the world of sports medicine as far as getting guys back on the field that would have been an injury that, Man, back when I was in high school in, in 1986, my buddy Chris Hutz had, tore his ACL. He was in this long cast. <laughs> they kept in a straight leg cast. He had a long, long zipper line, you know, the big incision in the front. And uh, his leg, when he got it out of this straight leg cast, was like a bird's leg. Chris was a big dude. He's like a lineman. He's actually the other linebacker. And I was actually the one who gave him the ACL injury, hitting him in the knee with the top of my helmet, making a tackle together. And uh, <laughs> he, I just remember he got out of that thing, and he looked so weird. I'm, and, you know, he missed you know, an entire year, you know, and he was yeah. still doing rehab. And you know, I don't know if Chris ever walked without a limp, but, man, they've gotten so good at doing those surgeries now. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good. Yeah, you see so many people with younger have so much more, so it seems like, knee arthritis and all these things that go along with surgery that today yeah. it seems like they're finding similar ways or new techniques that help prevent or slow down some of that arthritis as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we'll see how Deshaun Watson and uh, the Houston Texans will bounce back after this uh, injury. But it's one of those injuries you just kind of you wish it wouldn't have happened. You, there has been a – we're going to go over. I have the uh, all-pro injury list coming up, and we'll talk about that in one of our upcoming segments. But if you go look through the list of players that have been injured this year, man, it has been an extensive list of really, really good players. And so – it's, uh, I guess we could say, Hawk, it's been good for Docs and Jocks. Just yeah. from us. But I would love to have a show one week where we said, hey, there's been no injuries this week. We're not going to talk about any injuries, no concussions, no ACL ruptures, no uh, broken ribs. And uh, this week we're just going to talk about preventative health care because there's no injuries <laughs> to report. That, that, that has not happened in our career on Docs and Jocks. Yeah, that would be good. Been doing it 10 years, something like that now, and uh, never had that happen one time. But one of the gruesome injuries on uh, in the news was um, Zach Miller, the tight end for the Chicago Bears, he dislocated his knee. There's two parts to this story. One is a dislocated knee is a severe, severe injury that is very, very scary. I've had it happen to me on the field. I've ran out to a out to, uh, onto the field to see a player who had a dislocated knee. So basically, you know, your lower leg is made up of your tibia that sits underneath your, your femur and uh, your upper leg bone. And your tibia typically gets displaced posteriorly, gets pushed backwards. And uh, Zach Miller had this happen to him during the game. The problem with all that is, is there's a big artery that lives back behind your knee. And that artery is called your popliteal artery. It can be injured during that injury. And uh, it can also uh, stay injured. You can, ha- you can actually rupture that artery, which actually occurred to Zach Miller. He had an extensive popliteal artery injury. And he had to have a really limb-saving surgery immediately after that injury. If you leave it displaced for too long because the tibia goes backwards, it cr- it's like a cramp, uh, clamp on the artery and it's unable to get blood supply to your lower foot. So the first thing I did when I got my injury, the kid that I saw with the injury, I put him back in. reduced his injury his dislocation uh, was felt for a pulse in his foot which fortunately he had and he didn't end up losing his leg but very very serious injury the other thing was Zach Miller who caught a touchdown pass on this play in the end zone for the Bears he sat up with the ball after he caught it sat up with the ball and he then set it down because of the injury 
the officials in the NFL said he did not complete the catch and took the touchdown away, Hawk. It uh, was terrible, man. Hurt my fantasy team. Yes, it did. It took my nine points away. I don't I know what it one. is in the NFL to have a catch anymore. I think you've got to put the ball in your back pocket, run it over uh, the official, have him take it out of the pocket, <laughs> inspect the ball, followed by a polishing of the ball, and then it's a touchdown. It's so ridiculous now. Um, it's, just, it's one of Then my they have to check the air pressure. The, the air pressure as well. Yeah, don't get started. <laughs> hey, we'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks. Got a great show for you with some great guests coming up. Don't want to miss all of Docs and Jocks. Hey, remember, you can listen to us on iTunes at Docs and Jocks, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, anytime, anywhere. We'll be right back. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Joe Walker State Farm Insurance, Visual Edge, and Texas Sport and Spine. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. This is Dr. Dan, your longtime sports medicine physician, coming to you from inside the Ford Sports Training Facility, where our office, uh, Texas Sport and Spine, is also located. Great to have you with us today. If you're just catching the show for the very first time, want to find out more about our show, or maybe myself or our co-host, Brandon Hawk, the voice of, uh, or actually the former athletic trainer with uh, Dallas Cowboys and Texas Tech, who now is the director of the Ford Sports Training Facility, you can do that by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. Hey, uh, Hawk, I think uh, right before we went to commercial break there, we had talking about uh, Zach Miller, the Chicago Bears tight end, who dislocated his knee and had a popliteal artery injury. Uh, I think you had some questions you might have had about that. Yeah, Dr. Dan, I was wondering, like, you know, you see knee injuries all the time. Yeah. We just talked about Deshaun Watson, and, you know, you had Teddy Bridgewater not too long ago had a knee dislocation. Right. So how does a guy like Zach Miller get an arterial injury versus – Teddy Bridgewater, no arterial injury. What goes into play with that? Yeah, it's the combination of uh, how severely you compress or or uh, stretch the popliteal artery. It is the big artery that runs right behind your knee. In fact, if you put your hand behind your knee and push real deep kind of in the middle of that soft tissue, you can oftentimes feel the pulse of the popliteal artery as it runs right behind your femur and tibia. And so as your tibia slips backwards on the femur, in other words, your tibia has two uh, nice notches that are grooves that the, uh, the femoral condyle sit down into. So those knuckles are sitting down in the tibia. The tibia slips back behind. And so when it's behind, how far it goes backwards, if it just subluxes or if it fully dislocates, and that the amount of stretch or st- com- direct compression of the popliteal artery is what determines whether or not they get a rent or tear or injury. And also, you know, the extent of how severe the vascular injury is, is is also sometimes if that injury is left dislocated for a period of time. You know, if you, uh, you've all, everybody sat on their leg funny where you've sat on either the artery, the nerve for a period of time and you feel your leg go tingly from the lack of blood supply or the lack of yeah. uh, nerve sensation. Those things happen in those kind of injuries as well. So when you push on an artery and you block the flow, you tamponade or compress the artery too severely, you will then not have any blood flow going down to the leg, not carrying any oxygen down to it, and you can only do that for so long. Yeah. So people who have, like, bad, severe fractures, so say someone comes in and they have a tibial fracture, they have a bad femoral or femur fracture, you then have a lot of swelling associated with it, which then can cause such a tight tamponade of the nerve and the artery going to the further down the leg that they can actually lose their leg come from a compartment syndrome, a traumatic uh, compartment syndrome that causes compartment pressure syndrome, which compresses the arteries that way as well. So anything that blocks an artery, whether it's a you know traumatic gunshot wound that injures an artery, whether it's a dislocated knee that pushes on the artery, or whether it's a lot of swelling due to an injury inside that lower leg, it can all cause a vascular injury. So it's one of those scary moments in the sports medicine world where 
you know, you hope your training kicks in and you're able to put that knee back in to reduce it, that, that dislocation pretty fast. Yeah, that's really cool. I was uh, wondering, too, like if I'm out with a buddy of mine and, you know, he has a knee dislocation, what are some ways as me, just a radio listener right now, I would know if something that serious was happening? Well, it looks gruesome to say one. It looks really, really weird because your femur, the end of your femur now looks like it doesn't, it looks like it's sticking out. But really what it is, your tibia has slipped back behind it. So the injury itself looks really, really gruesome. And so, um, you know, what we're trained in the medical field to do is you, you feel for a pulse in the foot. Okay. And you feel to see, there's, there's an area, you kind of have to know where you're feeling at. But on the top of your foot, there's a, we call it a dorsalis pedis pulse. But you feel for that pulse and you look to see if there's a little pulsation on the top of the foot. You also look to see if it's starting to turn white, starting to lose its, its vascular content, you know, starts turning a different color. You know, the, the redness of your blood or the redness of your skin right underneath your skin is due to getting good blood flow through there. So as you lose that, you get a pallor or a discoloration of the extremely down below. But, man, trying to uh, – it would be very, very difficult for a, someone who's never done it before to even attempt or know what to do with a dislocated <laughs> knee. That's why team physicians are on the sideline <laughs> and athletic trainers who've trained in that. But – the athletic trainer that uh, I saw the knee dislocation with, with, with uh, initially thought it was like a, a patellar dislocation, which is a slipping of the patella off to the side. But no, a knee dislocation is a much more gruesome looking injury. As soon as he uncovered the knee, it's not one I had to guess on. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a knee dislocation. Yeah, so you have a guy like Teddy Bridgewater, knee dislocation, no artery injury, and Zach Miller with the artery injury. When we're talking about return to play timelines here, are we talking about Obviously, you're not treating the patient, yeah. so you don't know exacts. But are we talking about a longer recovery time with an in- artery injury? Yeah, because you are going to have to let the vascular injury heal completely. So before I start doing any rehab, any type of uh, you know intervention on that, that guy's knee, I have to have a vascular surgeon that tells me, hey, he's okay to return. The vascular injury is completely okay. He's been all treated. You can do your thing and go back and start doing rehab on him. So you're, it slows down the rehabilitation process slightly because anytime you have a more significant injury, in medicine there's things that trump everything, right? So if I'm going to do a, well, let's see, a back injection on a patient who has, has a uh, severe, severe heart condition that can't come off of his blood thinner, yeah. well, I get trumped, right? I get yeah. trumped. I can't do a back injection on a patient whose heart might stop if I did the procedure and had to have them come off their life-saving medicines. Yeah. So it always happens in medicine that way. A vascular injury? out trumps a musculoskeletal injury. Yes, you've got to eventually take care of the musculoskeletal injury, but only after that vascular injury has been completely healed because guess what? You can't rehab something that doesn't have good blood supply. Or if you re-injure the vascular injury, you know, you make it worse, it's it's going to take even longer. So you're going to have two separate surgeries. You'll have a vascular surgery, yes. and then how long before he actually has the ligament reconstruction surgery? Well, typically because you got to let that heal, and then you also are going to have a tremendous amount of swelling from the knee dislocation. So it's not uncommon, even if he didn't have a vascular injury, to ne- let the knee effusion, which it's a medical term for just a big swollen knee, let that somewhat resolve before you go in and you do the, do the uh, ACL reconstruction and re- reconstruct everything else that happened inside the knee at the time of the injury. The reason you do that is because if your knee is great big and swollen, it's called a knee effusion. You've all seen if people have bad injuries, their knees get swollen really big. If I go in there and I do surgery on them, they have a very difficult time trying to fire the muscles around the knee that have to stabilize it to allow it to fully get functionally healed. Even a little bit of fluid, 5 to 10 cc's, which isn't very much at all, 5 to 10 milliliters of fluid. Just think about it. You've all seen a test tube somewhere in high school chemistry. You know, we saw a test tube. Just put that amount of fluid inside of a normal knee, 
And the muscle around it, especially the quadriceps muscle, the big muscle in the front, it has a very difficult time firing. It's called a muscular inhibition. But you lose that ability. And so what happens then, the muscle starts atrophying because you can't, you can't fire it. Yeah. Atrophy means it gets smaller. If you have a bad knee injury and you just go home and you sit and you don't fire your quad, the quad gets really, really small fast, by the way. Or you skip Cotessa's workouts for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I start atrophying all the time. So <laughs> I, I atrophy in muscular areas and I grow around the waist is how that typically works. But, no, if you have a knee injury and you get that atrophy and uh, you get the swelling and you have the atrophy, it's a very difficult time for the physical therapist and the guys in the sports medicine doctors working with you to get you rehabilitated. So oftentimes you'll let that swelling go down. So you let the vascular injury that occurred, let it heal down. Then you let your uh, knee effusion start coming down. Then you start having them try and fire their quad as you're doing that. Get some muscular uh, strength back in the leg, and then you start. Then you can do the surgery. Then you start the rehabilitation. So it just slows the process down ever so slightly. Yeah, hopefully, you know, we uh, can see this is not a career-ending injury for Zach Miller, but I guess we never know. It's yeah, you know, you never know because everybody comes back different. Typically, no, shouldn't be right. Yeah. He's had good, good surgeons who will do a good job on doing uh, fixing, repairing, and reconstructing the things that were injured. So you see people come back from ACLs all the time. You, in, in those types of injuries, knee dislocations. I have a good my my uh, son's best friend dislocated his knee on a football field. He got put back in place, had uh, corrective surgery, has done extremely well. He's very athletic, runs, jumps. You would never know he even had it done. So hopefully it won't be in this young man. But you, you never know. There's there's always lots of things that go along with those knee injuries. Oftentimes you can have a fracture associated with it, especially in young kids because their growth plates are still there. They kind of have a weak end of their bones, so they can have an injury with that as well. So whether it's ligament injuries that are associated with it, whether you tore the meniscus when you came out, whether you severely injured the capsule that surrounds the knee, you had a vascular injury, associated with it there's so many things that can go along with it it's hard to say but most likely he's going to be able to come back at some point usually about probably about a year probably in his case yeah cool. so yeah so big injury there hey let's talk a little uh world series news here while we got it so you know we saw the uh Houston Astros, the great city of Houston, who went through Hurricane Harvey, they were able to come back from that terrible, tragic uh, hurricane and a rebuilding as a city. I think the timing of the Houston Astros winning the World Series, even though my wife's from L.A. and she uh, was rooting for the Los Angeles Dodgers, so to keep harmony in our house, I was uh, rooting for the Los Angeles Dodgers with her, though uh, I was secretly also hoping that the uh, Astros, uh, if they did win, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be too upset about it. So uh, we see the Astros win the game. I think a couple of big storylines in the World Series that probably played a part. I thought Cody Bellinger uh, was a little bit uh, – I think we're going to talk to Tracy Munton later on in the show, our mental strength coach, about sports anxiety. I think he let the moment get to him. He struck out something like 18 times in the World Series. He's going to be the National League Rookie of the Year. But he started the year in the minor leagues, having him play in the World Series – it just seemed like it caught up with him the moment a little bit too much. He was taking some hacks I've never seen him take all year long. He looked like a little bit out of place. Yeah. He uh, looked like he got his confidence down, and then it just kind of snowballed. And Here's the problem. If you are a big leaguer and you have a weakness, and Cody Bellinger has a weakness, it's called the outside high fastball, cannot hit it, <laughs> will not attempt to hit it most times unless he goes the other way. For whatever reason, he just would, would kept swinging the same swing. They're throwing the same pitch. In the big leagues, if you have a weakness, you are going to see a steady diet of that weakness. And that's what happened to him. And he was unable to make the change in the game that was needed to be able to overcome that. If a person, if a pitcher keeps throwing you outside, eventually you have to say, I'm going to take that pitch the other way. I'm not going to try and hit a 400-foot pull home run 
on an outside high strike fastball. Yeah. And so I think the moment got a little bit too big for Cody Bellinger, just my opinion, just from watching him. I think uh, when we saw Corey Seager come back from his back injury initially, he had that good game where he had a home run. I don't think he looked like the Corey Seager of the entire regular season. Yeah. And that may have been due to the back injury. Who knows? Maybe the moment got a little bit big for him, but he didn't look the same. Their four and five hitters just absolutely killed the Dodgers. It seemed like every time that there was two men on with the Los Angeles Dodgers, Cody Bellinger was up. And yeah. he struck out at a high outside strike fastball, followed by low inside curve over and over again. So that got him. I think you, Darvish, interestingly, I don't know if it was the injury earlier in the year. He also wrote a big article about how he put a ton of pressure on himself when he was with the Rangers and he didn't enjoy baseball because of the pressure. Well, where is there any more pressure than pitching in Game 7 of the World Series? I think Dave Roberts will be second-guessed over and over for his entire career why he didn't start the greatest pitcher on the planet right now, Clayton Kershaw, who was available. I mean, yeah. Step back for a moment, Hawk, and just say, <laughs> 10 years from now, you say the Los Angeles Dodgers were in Game 7 of the World Series, and they chose not to start Clayton Kershaw. That is just, it's unbelievable. I mean, to say it, you'd be like, what was he thinking? What was the manager thinking? Well, he was thinking he had Hugh Darvish, who they paid a bunch of money for, who's been a stud pitcher at times. But also, you and I watch the Texas Rangers a lot. Yeah. They're our favorite team. We've seen this in Hugh Darvish before. Yeah, I mean, especially this season. Yes. I mean, there have been times he's been dominant and he's dealt with tons of injuries and stuff. But this season, uh, it uh, he's shown so many different weaknesses. And I wonder now after us reading that article that came out in the Dallas Morning News about him putting so much pressure and caring about what people inside the organization and outside the organization thought about him yeah. that he said it took a lot of the fun out of baseball, which he said then he was able to relax – when he got to LA, but obviously, you know, I think there was a lot of things going on in his head. Like you said, game seven and Darvish in this world series just could not get the ball down. He was leaving it up so high and they were just crushing him, man. He was throwing the uh, slider and the curve and they were just spinning about waist high. I was like, Oh my (laughs) gosh, man. We were, my son and I were watching. We were like, Oh, don't you wish you'd see some of those pitches, Caleb? He was just, he's just flipping them up there and they were supposed to be kind of a, a, get on top of a curveball and have a downward spin to it and a hard break. But they were just spinning in air like they were just set up, and they were crushing him. Yeah, I mean, Bregman was getting the barrel on the like, bat. every yeah. pitch that Darvish threw. I mean, yep. I just uh, – I'm with you. Like, obviously, Clayton Kershaw is not Mr. Dodger. I'm sure there's another person named Mr. Dodger. I don't know who it is. I'm sure Sandy, you do. Sandy Koufax. There you go. And But in this area, he's Mr. Dodger. I yep. mean, like, you know, he came out there, and I think he shut – he shut him down like crazy. I, th- I don't know how long until he gave up a hit, but, I mean, I think you're right. Roberts is probably really shaking his head, just thinking, what the heck did I just do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like, uh, you know, I don't know what the saying is, something like uh, go to leave the dance with the one that brought you or something like that, but I feel like Clayton Kershaw in Game 7 of the, of the, of the World Series, he wants that ball because it's been the monkey on his back, let's face it. Yeah. Clayton Kershaw, his big one thing, again, he's had every kind of career accolade you can imagine, MVP, Cy Young, best pitcher on the planet. But he hasn't won a World Series, and so that was always a thing. Clayton Kershaw is not good in the big games. He can't get the Dodgers over the hump in the playoffs. He finally makes the World Series. He's ready to go in Game 7, and they don't pitch him, man. I just just (laughs) cannot figure that out, fathom why Dave Roberts chose not to pitch him. But I bet if... You Darvish throws five shutout innings, he's a genius, right? Yes. If you Darvish gives up five innings in the first inning and a third, 
he looks like a crazy man. And that's what he's looking like right now just because of the way it worked out. So it's easy to second-guess a manager. It's a job I probably don't want. Uh, yeah. Everybody second-guesses you all the time. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, just didn't seem like you, Darvish was – the U Darvish of earlier in the playoffs. And he'd had some good playoff games and really bad playoff games. So it was hard to say which one you were going to get. But, man, I just feel like Clayton Kershaw deserved the ball. They say Clayton Kershaw actually told Dave Roberts the game before that he would actually won the ball uh, the day after he threw 90 pitches in four and two-thirds innings. He said he was ready to go then. So I mean, this is the last, game, last series of the year. Why not? Why not, man? What are you saving it for? So, And it may have been that you Darvish had a bad back. may have been that that was the injury that – you know, didn't allow him to be sharp, but it was it was sad to see the Dodgers go out that way. Yeah. And I wish the game would have been a you know a shutout game with both uh, Clayton Kershaw and uh, McCullers going head to head, toe to toe. But it didn't end up being that way. So, yep. but congratulations to the Houston uh, Astros who had a great season. Crazy that the. Uh, the Sports Illustrated article that came out that said they're going to win in 2017 came out three years ago, and they got it right. So, hey, we'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks. When we come back, we're going to be hopefully talking to Jim Snyder, former Major League Baseball player and manager. I'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Sylvan Learning Center, Dr. Melton Chiropractic, and Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. Great to have you with us today. If you're just catching our show for the very first time, your sports medicine radio show, and you will find out more about myself or our co-host this week, Brandon Hawk, you can do so by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. Love you having to be part of our show anyway, anytime, anywhere. Hey, uh, Brandon Hawk, my co-host, a former athletic trainer for the Dallas Cowboys and Texas Tech Red Raiders. We were talking uh, about the World Series this year, Hawk, and it, it, I realize I'm old, Hawk. Hawk's a lot younger than me. I'm <laughs> just, just about to turn 50 years old, and I was talking to a lot of people about uh, Kirk Gibson's home run. And so those of you who are out there listening who are close to my age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Kirk Gibson is a famous home run. And we're actually going to play the clip because I think we need to do that here in a little bit just to let everybody remember what a great home run it was. But Kirk Gibson is in game one of the 1988 World Series, and he was for the he was the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder. Kirk Gibson had been fam- most famous, really, for being both a football player at Michigan and then it was well – he goes on to have a great career with the uh, Detroit Tigers. So he goes in free agency, gets picked up by the Los Angeles Dodgers, and uh, he is their big slugger. And so game one, 1988 World Series, the Dodgers are playing the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's that year had been a dominant team. They had Mark McGuire. They had Jose Canseco. They have former future Hall of Famer Dennis Eckersley as their closer. They had a Hall of Fame manager, Antonio La Russa. La Russa is the guy who gets it started with having a specialist relief pitcher that just comes in in the ninth inning. So that's what Dennis Eckersley did all year. He was lights out. He's this sidearm, three-quarter slinger, had this wicked back foot slider that nobody could hit. And so the A's are definitely favored in this World Series over the Los Angeles Dodgers. To make matters worse, Kirk Gibson, here's the sports medicine angle of the story, he has a left hamstring injury. And on top of that, he has a severely arthritic knee on the right that's swollen. It's huge. It's, he's been wearing this knee brace. It looks like something that was built, you know, to, to, for the astronauts to walk the moon. It's big and disabling. It's a giant knee brace, and he's hobbling around on this right knee. While doing that, he, he strains his left hamstring, so he's not even supposed to play in the World Series at all. So the A's are favored. The Dodgers not only are, are the underdog in the series, they lose their best player, Kirk Gibson. So the setting is it's the ninth inning. There's two outs, one runner on for the Dodgers, the bottom of the ninth inning. 
And who does Tony La Russa send up to the plate? He sends up Kirk Gibson. Watching him walk up to the plate, he's walking like a hobbled old man. He's barely can walk to the plate. He's definitely limping on the right knee. He can't straighten the left leg because of the hamstring injury. But he tells Tony La Russa in the dugout, hey, I think I can do this. You see him warming up. They show him in the dugout. He's warming up down in the tunnel, trying to swing a bat, making sure he can do it. He comes out and says, I can do it. So one run on, one runner on, a 4-3 to three game. The Dodgers are losing. Bottom of the ninth inning, Dennis Eckersley, future Hall of Famer, is on the mound, lights out all year long. The A's are supposed to win this thing. I'll let you listen to the clip and let it run by the famous Jack Buck, the most famous sports announcer, my favorite sports announcer of all time. He is the father of Joe Buck, who did, did do the World Series this year. I'll let him, Jack Buck, in the words of Jack Buck, here's Kirk Gibson's home run. Here we go. the best reliever in baseball this year. He limps very noticeably as he walks to the plate. He's a left-handed batter. He's got a bad hamstring and a bad knee. Davis is on at first. It's not beyond him to steal a base with Eckersley. We talked about Eckersley. He keeps the left leg up a long time, and that gives the runner at first base a chance to get to it three steps. Fielders will be straight away in deep, and this game will end on a dramatic note, one way or the other, with Gibson up there. Tying run at first, two out. Here's the pitch. Swing and a foul, strike one. And he's having problems after he oh, fouled that back. He put all the weight on that right knee and just hobbled out of there. But he taps the dirt out of his spikes and goes back up to wait for another. A two-out walk. Gives the Dodgers a life here in the bottom of the ninth. The A's are leading 4-3. Davis at first, the turn, run two out. Eckersley gets the sign from Hassey. Here comes another, the runner going. Swinging a foul, out of play, off to the left. Boy, what a tough cookie this Gibson is. Former football player, Michigan State, defensive back, drafted by the Cardinal football team. He elected to play baseball, and the Dodgers are happy about that. And, of course, with a big star in Detroit. You all know all about him. He is playing hurt, hurt, hurt. He's up there with a one ball, two strike count, two out, tying run at first, bottom of the ninth, the pitch. High two and two. Oh, we might see Davis take off again here. If he took off uh, one and two, he might take off two and two. How good a thrower is Hassey? The best or Hassey, not? no. Hassey, uh, he can get the ball down. He's not the best of catchers, uh, but uh, he, he does an excellent job. Two and two, the count to Gibson. Tying run at first, two out. Throw to first, the runner gets back. The A's are leading 4-3, bottom of the ninth. 55,000-plus for the first game of this 88 series. Gibson will get back in with a 2-2 count, and sooner or later, Eckersley's going to have to come to him again. He had a two-strike count, now it's two and two. The right-hander is ready. Here it comes, the runner going, it's outside, no throw, stolen base, tying run at second. Two out and three, two on Gibson. You said it, Bill White, Eckerly doesn't hold him close. Doesn't hold him close, Jack, and if Davis ran on one ball, two strikes, you figure he's got to go on two and two. That pitch was away, and an easily easy stolen base for Davis. And now an easier opportunity to tie this game. If Gibson can solve the Dennis Eckersley, who saved 45 games for the A's this year, he's trying to save it for Dave Stewart. Mike Davis at second base with two out. 
three and two to Gibson. A base hit with Tad. A home run would win it for the Dodgers. If Gibson gets on, Sachs comes up. From the stretch, time called by Gibson. And if he does get on, that would uh, make uh, Lasorda make another decision. He'd have, he'd have to use a base runner because he doesn't oh, yeah. want that force at second base. Yeah, he would run for Gibson and have Sachs batting. But we have a big 3-2 pitch coming here from Eckersley. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Tigers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third base coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. Wow, that was an amazing moment in uh, sports medicine history, Hawk, as uh, Kirk Gibson couldn't even hardly round the bases because he was limping <laughs> so bad. So I believe we have online Jim Snyder. Jim is a former big league manager with the uh, Seattle Mariners, also played uh, professionally as well uh, as a second baseman in the big leagues, and he's been with multiple different teams as a coach, the Reds, the Phillies, the Cubs, the Mariners, the White Sox, San Diego Padres, and, and the Braves. Jim, this is Dr. Dan. Great to have you on air today. Hi, Doc. How you doing? Doing great. Hey, I was just going to ask you, you were a manager for the uh, Seattle Mariners in the 1988 season. For those who are too young to remember the Kirk Gibson story, and, and you know, I'm almost 50, Jim, and, and I was telling a bunch of young 20-year-olds, I said I was doing the, the Kirk Gibson running around the bases, fist pumping out as I was going. They were like, what are you doing? I'm like, you don't know who Kirk Gibson is? Tell us what it was like uh, you watching that, being a big league manager yourself during that time frame, what that meant to baseball at the time. Well, you know, he came off. He came off the bench. He wasn't supposed to be playing. Yeah. And uh, I think they asked him whether he was going to. He was all right. And he said, "Got to be all right for the World Series." Yeah. So he, he went up. He went up there. He went up there one legged and hit the ball out. I know. It was such an amazing event. Well, I'll, I'll never forget the call, <laughs> Joe, Jack Buck's call too. I don't believe what I just saw because I think that really expressed how we all felt about it. Yeah. Well, you know, that was that was. Uh, a different era in the game, and uh, guys guys played when they when they when yeah. they were hurt, and uh, you know there were there were a lot more leagues back then. We had about a lot more players to uh, fill in the gaps back then. So yeah, you played, you played exactly. You know, there's a, b- a lot of differences in the game. You played in the era. You know, you played back in the '60s, and you coached in the '70s, '80s, and '90s, and even more recently. And you know, there are some things I think that are different about the game right now. And you mentioned some of them to my producer. And uh, talk to us about, you know, the mound was obviously higher when you played. Baseball, uh, the seams had bigger, the baseballs had bigger seams, which makes it easier to throw some of the off-speed deals and also the lack of throwing inside. Mention some of those differences. Talk to us about some of those differences between when you played and how the guys play now. Well, I just, I just recognize a lot, a lot of differences in the, uh, in the way that the pitchers pitch now. They, I never see, rarely do you see anybody Pushed off the plate, and uh, you know when Clements was pitching, when uh, Gibson was pitching, when Drysdale was pitching, when Stan Williams was pitching back in those days, 
You didn't. You didn't take. You didn't take heavy swings or big swings off of those guys because you did the work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a repercussion for it for for sure. In fact, you mentioned Bob Gibson. He's the reason. I believe it was his one point one two ERA. That was the reason why why they lowered the mound. And explain to our listeners who maybe aren't baseball aficionados like you are why lowering the mound gives the batter a little bit of an advantage. Well, when you think about the difference between six inches of elevation. And the ball is coming at, a, at an angle instead of flat. And when, you're, when the, the guy was standing on a 16-inch mound, he was looking down at you. Yeah. And he had a lot more, you know, now pitching coaches are trying to create angle by getting guys to get over the top a little bit more, especially the tall guys, to create that type of angle. Yeah. But it gets tough when you're on a 10-inch mound and it's flat and, uh, the strike zone has gotten smaller because when I was playing, it was from the letters on down, and now it seems to be from the waist on down. Right. And they've taken a lot of, a lot of things away from the pitchers to get, I think, more, more uh, offense. Well, I was going to ask you about that, too. We see now it seems like, uh, and you played in an era where the strikeout was really frowned upon if you were a player. Your, your goal was to put the ball in, in play and not strike out and, and, and move the runners over. A, kind of a small ball mindset, if you might call it that. I guess you could call that. But give me your opinion. We see guys now doing a lot more strikeouts, but they also might have you know, every 16th at bat a home run. So as long as they hit the home run, it's almost like the uh, strikeouts are all forgiven. Do you feel like that's the, that's the way people look at it? That's the way they're looking at it now. I guess the computer guys are, but I, the baseball people don't because <laughs> if you struck out a hundred, if you struck out 150 or 170 times or 190 times, you you weren't going to have a job. Yeah, right. Back in those days, you know, you had guys like Ted Williams and DiMaggio and and uh, Mays and, and Aaron and all the great players back yeah. then. They, they they struck out 190, 200 times. You know, they they, they put the ball in play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to believe guys like Stan Musial actually hit more home runs than they had strikeouts in a season. You you hardly ever ever hear of that anymore because of so many strikeouts. And also, Jim, we're talking to Jim Snyder, former uh, big league player, and then went on to uh, had a long managerial career, career in the big leagues. And, Jim, talk to us about, you were a second baseman, uh, what your thoughts are on the new shift we see. You know, we've seen it become more and more prevalent over the last five years for sure where they move whether you're a left-handed hitter and they move the shortstop over in behind second base and the third baseman moves over to shortstop or vice versa if you're a right-handed hitter. What's your thought on the shift? Do you like it? Is it something that you think that's good for baseball? Does it give the, the defenders an advantage? Just give us your take. Well, if the way the game is today, it's all about home runs and everybody's trying to jerk the ball. Yeah. And so that's why they get over it. If they had done that against us, we we would we would have been able to hit the ball the other way because we were taught to go the other way. Yeah, I mean, we're just part of it. We we hit and ran. And we we moved the ball a lot. We ran a lot more than they're doing now. And uh, I just I just think that if they played that way against us, you'd have you'd have somebody hit four hundred. Yeah, exactly. You lay down a bunt. I mean, I, you hardly ever see that anymore. But when the third place baseman is playing shortstop. You can lay a bunt down and be wide open. You could never shift it against a guy like Rod Carew, Tony Gwynn. They would have. They probably would have hit 450. <laughs> you know, they'd been, been been crazy for sure. There was also uh, some. I, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Jim. I was with Tony Gwynn for two years, and that guy could hit the ball wherever you wanted to. If you pitched one place, he was going to hit it that way. Yeah. 
if you you uh, pitch him away, he was going to hit it to left field. You hit him down the middle, he was going to hit it to, through the middle. And if you pitch him inside, he was going to jerk. <laughs> right. That's just the way we yeah. just the way we played back in those days. And uh, the hitters were just able to handle the pitches all over the strike zone. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a different area. You see more home runs, more strikeouts. It's just a different type game. I'm just uh, we have about a minute left here, Jim. There's there's all this new talk I hear people talking about Cody Bellinger and his his launch angle and how uh, you know suddenly now you're supposed to swing up at it. You know, the baseball swing hasn't been reinvented. It's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. But really, I you know, they don't talk about swinging level as much as they used to. It's just a different approach on hitting than it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s in my field. Do you agree? Oh, well, if, if, you, if you're talking about launch angle, that tells you what you're after. They're after launch. Yeah. You know, and we were, we were taught uh, level through the, through the zone yeah. so we could uh, hit the ball all over the ballpark. Launch angle is somebody's going to somebody's trying to jerk the ball. If there's a launch angle, right? That's that's the that's the way the game is today, and so uh, you can talk all about all you want to about all the cybermetric stuff. When it comes down to playing baseball, I think you have to go back to the old timers, the way they played the game, and using all of the information that they have now. You have a vast amount of information to use. But when it comes right down to it, you have to have that feel for the game. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you what, Jim, if it's okay with you, our interview's been way too short. Maybe we can get you on next week and talk about your career. You had a long, long career, both in the minor leagues, major leagues, and then as well as coaching. And I'd love to pick your brain some more about baseball and just the uh, all you've learned over the years and all your wisdom. Hopefully we can get you on next week. Would that be okay with you? I have no problem with all that. All right. Okay. Hey, we'll be right back with more Docs and Jocks after this short commercial break. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by West Texas Neurosurgery, Abilene Tech, and Sports Clips. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. This is Dr. Dan coming from inside the Ford Sports Training Facility in Texas Sport and Spine. Hey, if you're just catching our sports medicine radio show for the very first time, want to find out more about it, you can do so by going to docsandjocks.com, D-O-X-N-J-O-X.com. You can also listen to us on our iTunes app by just going to Docs and Jocks and subscribing, D-O-X-N-J-O-X, one of the fastest-growing uh, podcasts out there. We want to say thank you to all our wonderful listeners for doing so. Joined this week by my co-host, Brandon Hawk. Hawk is the longtime athletic trainer with the Dallas Cowboys and the Texas Tech Red Raiders. He is now the producer, full-time producer of Docs and Jocks, filling in for the great Ferris, who's out in uh, Grand Canyon University doing their sports broadcasting this week with the basketball team. So we are honored to have online here, Hawk. We have on Ashley Blakely. Ashley is a former the Hardin-Simmons University physical therapy graduate. We like to say the Hardin-Simmons <laughs> University because my alma mater. And Ashley went there after a uh, long athletic career. She became a physical therapist and is now working with a lot of athletes doing a special type of manual physical therapy called fascial distortion model. And so, Ashley, I want to say thank you for coming on Docs and Jocks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, physical therapy, we've had on lots of great physical therapists here on Docs and Jocks. I think it's one of the fields my field, physical medicine rehabilitation, works the most closely with trying to get athletes and trying to get really any uh, adult or kid that's, that's had an injury to a musculoskeletal injury, but trying to get them back out on the field. And so tell us what you do with manual therapy. Kind of describe that, and then we'll get into the fascial distortion model. Okay, uh, manual therapy is anything where – you're physically using your hands trying to manipulate tissue or muscles, ligaments, that kind of stuff, back into their correct uh, their correct alignment. So it's more 
hands-on rather than just exercise-based, taking you through exercise and doing it through that way. Um, manual therapy is more hands-on. You're touching the patient, helping them specifically in a certain area of their body. And, in, and just because you're doing manual therapy doesn't mean you're also not doing the more traditional strengthening. Oftentimes, the two of them go together. Do I have that right? Yes, that is very, yeah, that's yeah. correct. And then, so you also do a special technique where you work with athletes and you do a fascial distortion model. Kind of explain to us what, first of all, fascial, explain to our listening audience what fascia is and why it might, what you're doing to help it uh, regain its normal alignment so that people can get better. Okay, so fascia is the covering. If you, if you take off the skin, if think fried chicken, you take off the skin and there's that shiny layer, that is fascia. And we have that throughout our body surrounding every muscle, tissue, organ, everything. And so it runs throughout the entire body. So what you're doing is we're trying to correct that uh, to get rid of the pain and realign everything. So the fascial distortion model uses one or a combination of six different uh, distortions to correct what the patient is showing you, telling you, and what their mechanism of injury, how their injury happened. You're using those six different techniques to correct what is wrong with the patient. Right. Hey, hey, Ashley, this is Brandon. Uh, Hey, how do you guys, when you're evaluating something like this, what are some things that you're actually looking for? Are you doing like a simple gait analysis or what what goes into your evaluation? So if we're, if we're looking simply from the distortion model, you, you base it off of what they show you and what they tell you. So if you ask them, where does it hurt? You're looking for what they're doing with their hand. If they're, you know, if a baseball player has a lot of bicep stuff, he's usually running a line down his arm from his shoulder to his elbow. Um, or a lot of people come in and they, they have neck pain or shoulder pain and they're just digging into their shoulder or neck trying to get that pain to go away. And so you ask them, you pay attention to what they're telling you and then you ask them, what does it feel like? Is it a pull? Is it a deep ache? Is, you know, really listen. And a lot of times they have no idea what you're really looking for, but they will, they will do the same, the same hand gestures as every other person that has this this specific distortion, like a trigger band, or if you have a cylinder distortion. So, and you're also basing it off of their mechanism of injury. So if they rolled their ankle, how did they roll it? Is it inverted? Um, you know, did they have an inversion sprain, eversion sprain? So you're paying attention to those things. And then how fast they move. You know, if they're, if they're lifting both arms, is that left arm going up real slow, but it eventually gets full range of motion? Or is it same thing, but they're saying, oh, there's a pinch at the end? You know, one thing that's interesting, I think, about the fascia theory of, of, of injury is that, you know, there's this fascia, and it really covers all of your body. It's everywhere throughout. So you can have a injury to your fascia in your lower extremity, and it might be causing, or maybe in your foot and ankle, and it might be causing some problems about the hip. Do I have, is that, is that a good way of explaining it? Yes, that's correct. We always joke that we're working on the big toe because there's something wrong in the neck. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is true, you know, and you, uh, the other thing, the interesting part about your career, I was reading through your bio, is that you were an athlete yourself, and this is one of the techniques that was used to keep you uh, playing volleyball. You were an all-conference volleyball player for the University of Albany that allowed you to get back out on the court. Oh, yeah. From the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was pretty accident-prone. So without without the therapist that introduced me to this technique, um, I wouldn't have been able to finish high school and get through college. So, And it's got to be rewarding now being able to treat athletes and get them back on the field to play using this technique that was used on you to allow you to play. Oh, man, it's awesome. The, the best thing you can do is 
you get a kid in there that was on crutches and an hour later you're telling them to walk and they feel fine when they're walking. Okay. Jog down the hall. And when they're coming back to you, they have the biggest smile on their face. Cause they're like, man, it's Wednesday. And I actually might be able to play on Friday. So it's, it's awesome to see. And your husband being a head baseball coach, has he sent all the baseball players in there to see you now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're kind, of, they're kind of my guinea pigs. <laughs> but That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Hawk, you have a question for Ashley? Hey, Ashley. So a lot of your background, you know, being physical therapy, I'm an athletic trainer, so we have similar training. A lot of it's just like, you know, all right, they have an ankle sprain. They come in. We do some mobility, strengthening range of motion exercises. So mm-hmm. how has in this field now that you're doing more manual therapy – with the dealing with fascia, have you had to retrain your brain to kind of treat your athletes? Yeah, at first it was when, when I first learned it, cause I always knew about it, but when I learned the, the, you know, the pieces to the puzzle, you kind of have to turn your brain off and stop thinking about so many other things or think about, okay, this is a sprain. So this ligament, this ligament, you basically just have to go with what the patient is showing you and what they're telling you. So it's very simple um, but yeah, you, you do, you have to retrain it and kind of say, okay, everything I learned, that's great, but just turn it off for a second and, and look at the pay, really look at the patient and what they're showing you. And Ashley, when you do uh, the uh, fascial distortion model techniques on your patients, obviously you're doing a lot of different stretches, deep tissue, um, manual type therapy. Do you have any other uh, modalities you use? Like, uh, do you use e-stim? Do you ever do dry needling? Do you, is there anything that you add on to try and get even a better stretch of the fascia? Um, sometimes if someone's in a lot of pain and they have, um, they have an Easton machine or something like that, I will tell them, yeah, go ahead and use it. If that gives you relief, uh, go for it. If it's, if it's ice or heat, um, I know there's a huge debate between ice and heat, but I usually tell, ask a patient what feels better to you. And if it's heat, go with that, unless it's, you know, an acute injury, obviously, but, um, I, whatever, usually the patient is already doing something that helps them feel better. So as long as it's not doing damage to the tissue, which most of the 99% of the time it's not, I tell them to go ahead and keep doing it. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Ashley, you know, before the interview here, we were talking about another company that kind of does some fascial things. And uh, I had a personal experience with uh, the fascial uh, realignment stuff. Um, I had a uh, injury on the outside of my knee that I thought I had a knee injury and ended up being my IT band. And this guy was working with a lot of our athletes and, with the Cowboys. And I was kind of sitting over in the corner like, yeah, I don't know about all this stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> then uh, he saw me kind of limping. He's like, what are you limping? I was like, my knee is just killing me. He's like, well, are you ready to make it go away? And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And uh, I was like, is it going to hurt? And he's like, well, how bad are you hurting now? I was like, pretty bad. He's like, well, let's see what we can do. So he, he gets into my hip and does a few things and has me walk. And I'm like, yeah, it feels a little better. And then lay back down, does it a little again. And he's like, all right, start running. It was completely gone. So I, I am one of those guys that I'm a big believer in fascial training and realigning or distortion or however, whatever phrase I guess anybody wants to use. But did, did yeah. it take you a while to get on board with that as well? Um, I think it takes, it took me less time just because I had personal experience with it. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, they're kind of skeptical at first until, you know, if we teach them, you know, if it's a two day course, they'll go home that night of the first night and usually treat a family member or someone that's hurting (laughs) and they'll come back the next day and they're like, I'm all in, let's just, I'll dive in right now. So 
it takes them a little bit, but they get there. Yeah. Hey, for our listening audience, by the way, Hawk was using the medical words there. No one knows what an IT band is, by the way, Hawk. I'm sorry. So your iliotibial band is a big band <laughs> of tissue that runs on the outside of your hip, runs all the way down the side of your leg, and then becomes kind of a smaller band of tissue that kind of wraps around your knee. So what he's saying basically is they use that fascial release technique to allow the whole entire band to r- work more smoothly so it's not rubbing just at the knee and gets it so it doesn't hurt. So trying to break it down a little layman's term there, Hawk. We, that's you, why you're the host and I'm the <laughs> producer. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's that's what you're doing. You know, the other thing we used to call this a lot, and, and by the way, Ashley, I'm an old guy, so you have to excuse me, but we usually call this the kinetic chain is the way we thought about it in physical medicine rehabilitation. We always said, you know, basically you're a box with four little pendulums hanging off of it. If your box wobbles, it causes problems elsewhere. So we've always, for a long time, there's been a segment in the in the medical world that felt like just because you say the outside of your hip hurts or just because you say your ankle hurts or your knee hurts, it can be something way off, way further off the kinetic chain that's causing that problem. That's really what you're evaluating when a patient comes in to see you. You're looking to say, hey, does the hip, is it working smoothly so it's not causing a knee problem? Is the knee working smoothly so it doesn't cause an ankle problem? Is their core stable to start with so they don't have a hip, a knee, and an ankle problem? Is, is that the way you look at it? That's exactly right. Yeah, you think of it kind of each person as a Jenga tower. If you're taking, they have an injury here, injury there, you're taking blocks apart, so they're unsteady. So it could be that they've been, you know, they had no traumatic injury, but it's over time it's worn down, and that injury is coming from somewhere. And usually wherever the injury is, unless they, you know, got sideswiped by someone, it's not that exact spot. It's coming from, like you said, if it's the knee, it's usually the foot or the ankle. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're always looking elsewhere where, yeah. where the body is breaking down. Exactly. Hey, Ashley, uh, I was looking on your website. Uh, by the way, it's backfittexas.com. Uh, and there's a quote on here that I really like that Dr. Dan kind of in a different word uses with his patients every day. But fixing the injured tissue without addressing the underlying problem is like putting new tires on a car that is out of alignment. Yeah. I like that one. I'm going to steal that, Ashley. Is that okay if I steal that? (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. (laughs) Yeah, I just like that, you know, because in our our practice here, you know, Dr. Dan is preaching core stability. Like you said, it creates so many other issues, knee, hip, ankle issues. And so a lot of times people are getting treatment that is not – the underlying issue, and so I just love that you guys kind of think this the same way we do. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to yeah. steal your uh, the Jenga model too. Is that why you say that game, that board game you play, where you, it all falls apart? Yes. We use that one too. So yeah. yeah, anything that allows me to uh, allow patients to understand it better is always something that's helpful. But do you see a trend in athletics, uh, Ashley, where you see maybe basketball players tend to have fascial problems in one area more than say? baseball players i know you've done a lot of baseball because your husband's involved in the baseball world do you see different trends in different athletes that tend to go together oh yeah of course basketball is is usually knee and ankle a lot of times um and then baseball players it's obviously elbow and shoulder but a lot of times that comes from them not being not having the strength in the lower half to transfer the energy and so some you've always got to look at the ankles and the knees and in all of them. Um, and basketball too, you can have, uh, shoulder injuries, like dislocations and stuff like that. Uh, volleyball and baseball kind of go together. Uh, football is usually knee and back. A lot of times with football, it's something that they've done in the weight room, um, with something that they're doing a little bit wrong, or if they hurt their back lifting, a lot of times it's coming from their feet because they, they don't have the stability, the foundation. And so they try to lift too much and, you know, 
one of those Jenga boxes out of a line and it throws off their back. Do you ever work with strength and conditioning coaches to try and work together so to pre- do a preventative program? And, and if you have, I want to say thank God because uh, I, I've never been able to break that, that down. But I see a lot of injuries from uh, heavy power cleans, heavy deadlifts, heavy squats that just seem like they're not worth, to my, in my estimation, the benefit they get from those lifts. It seems like they get more injuries. But do you ever work closely with a strength conditioning coach with a program to try and keep it from having injuries? No, I really wish I could. But <laughs> I, I might too. I might break into it uh at down at Texas State. We don't go. I don't know. I've I've talked with the strength they're very open minded. Um, and two of them have had injuries since I've been there and they've kind of asked my you know, picked my brain about stuff. So maybe maybe yeah. I'll make it there one day. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's a whole area if we, because it, it you know, when you're trying to get bigger, faster, stronger Man, if you, you cause an injury along the way, you kind of lose all your gains. And so I always wish they would work with physical therapists who have a mindset like you that looks kind of at the whole person or with a physiatrist that kind of looks at the kinetic chain. And athletic trainers are oftentimes also very, very good sources of knowledge. But, man, we all got to be on the same page because an athlete who's injured, it doesn't matter if they can squat 500 pounds. If they can't play in the game that, that Saturday, it doesn't really do any good. So, yeah, I would love for them to be able to pick your mind. And uh, I think Texas State, I met uh, Sebastian and. I think he'd be the kind of guy yeah. that would be willing to uh, work with you. So we'll have to help try and uh, promote that for sure. So, hey, yeah, if someone is interested awesome. in doing one of your courses, we just have a minute here left. If they're interested in either doing one of your courses to learn how to do uh, the fascial distortion model or they want to uh, find out more about your practice, how would they do so? Uh, you can go to fascialdistortionmodel.com, and that lists all of the upcoming uh, events that we have or courses. And we're, we're trying to get a home base uh, in Dallas so that everyone can come to Dallas and take the courses. But right now we, we're kind of spread out. We do ones all over the place. Um, and then if you want to come see me, I'm down in New Braunfels at uh, backfittx.com. And it's just uh, it's nothing fancy, just a room with a table and working it trying to get everything back into alignment. Awesome. Sounds great. I knew you'd be a great interview because you uh, studied at the great Hardin-Simmons University, so <laughs> great to have another cowboy on air with us here. Hey, uh, thank you, Ashley Blakely. We'll have to have you on again real soon, and uh, so thank you for your husband, J- uh, Josh Blakely, arranging the interview, and uh, go Texas State. Thank you. All right. Hey, well, uh, you've been listening to Docs and Jocks. We'll be right back after this short commercial break. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Joe Walker State Farm Insurance, Visual Edge, and Texas Sport Inspired. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks. This is your sports medicine radio show. My name is Dr. Dan, longtime sports medicine physician with Texas Sport and Spine, doing what I do on my day job here on air at Docs and Jocks. Hawk, we are joined by, by the way, my co-host this week is Brandon Hawk, the longtime trainer with the Dallas Cowboys and Texas Tech Red Raiders. We are joined by the lovely Miss Tracy Munton, who is a certified mental performance consultant. Wow, that's a big, long name. But she's actually a mental strength coach here at the Forge uh, where we do uh, sports training. And part of that sports training is we want to concentrate on nutrition. So we talk to the great Jill Lane, who's a Dallas Cowboys uh, nutritionist. We talk about visual training with Dr. Barry Seiler, who does the Visual Edge, which is always available here at uh, Docs and Jocks. We also like to talk about mental strength. And one of the most common things I think that is left out when you're talking about how do you improve your athletic performance is the mental side of athletic performance. And that's what uh, Tracy is basically trained in. First of all, thanks for being on air, Tracy. Thank you for having me. All right. So uh, you, we just saw in the news right now we had you Darvish with the Texas Rangers. And I'm going to have Hawk read a quote that he wrote, which I think is very telling about how the Rangers and how you Darvish their relationship and then 
maybe explains a little bit about what happened in the World Series when he really just got killed in the last game, five runs. He just didn't look like himself. So, Hawk, read this quote, and we're going to be talking about sports anxiety is what we're talking about on the show and how you deal with it. So, Hawk, read the quote that uh, you Darvish had. When I was with the Rangers, I always played hard and tried hard, but I listened and paid too much attention to any criticism I heard inside and outside of the clubhouse. Darvish said in that text, there were many times that the relationship with my teammates weren't that great. Those are the things that led me to where I was able to not have as much fun playing baseball. He then continued, but after I got traded and saw it from a different point of view, I realized how much the Rangers and the fans cared about me. That's when I gradually started to be able to have fun in baseball again. So it's one of those things where he was listening to the critics and he, he took that internally and put all that pressure on himself. I call it sports anxiety. First of all, you know, is it is that a normal response to be anxious in sports? Is it an abnormal response? Is it something you should fight back? Give us your take on it. Um, I mean, it definitely a lot of athletes deal with anxiety. I, I think a lot of it kind of depends on your natural personality. You know, if you're a naturally anxious person, if you naturally, you know, kind of tend towards worrying about what other people think of you, those things can definitely affect you in your sports. I mean, right. of course. And so um, there are a lot of athletes that will carry that over and they, and they maybe focus on it too much, focus on the negative, focus on the anxiety, um, focus on things that may, they maybe can't necessarily control. Right. So really in what you Darvish is saying by saying I listen to my critics is the fact that he was saying basically – I internalized all that, and I felt like I had to do something because it was all about me. Right. And he he kind of took, you know, what he was hearing and totally focused on himself, which, it you know, team sports is, is kind of that dichotomy of it is about the team 100%. What can I do to help the team, to be a part of the team? But you do have to focus on yourself in some regards and, and be yeah. aware of what's going on with your own personal performance. But when he, if he was kind of naturally anxious and kind of naturally a person that would take that criticism and take it in and hold it in, it was definitely, you know, one of those things that was getting to him and causing his anxiety to go up and then affect his performance. Right. So if we know sports anxiety is, is something that does happen to most individuals in sports and we're not trying to say it doesn't exist, you have to, one, acknowledge that it exists. And if it does exist, what are some real-life examples of things people can do when they feel that coming up? Well, I've always felt it, you know, when I come up to the plate and it's a big situation, I feel that anxiety kind of rising up in me and I may get a little nervous, a little shaky, a little jittery. What's some real-life things either through mental relaxation or uh, relaxation techniques that people can do to help them with that? Right. Well, that's that's there's several things, and relaxation is definitely one of those things where athletes can learn um, – when that feeling starts rising up in them, if they have been practicing the skill of relaxation, you're like, wait, that's a skill? Yeah, it is. It's like anything else you have to practice. You can get good at it. Where they can practice relaxing, you know, um, their muscles, um, slowing their breathing. If they're, you know, if your heart rate gets too high and you just have that that anxious feeling and and you're just breathing quicker and your muscles are tense, you're think about it tense your muscles as hard as you can and try to play your sport i mean that makes it almost impossible and so especially when you're dealing with a sport that's very quick tennis right, baseball whatever right so um when you when you learn to uh relax to breathe um also it kind of goes hand in hand with focus and concentration what am i going to focus on you can't go to the plate if you're a baseball player 
and you're a hitter, you can't go to the plate thinking of all the criticism that's coming that's been coming your way, or you can't think about um, just everything everybody's said to you. Really, honestly, when you get up there at that point, you really don't need to be thinking at all. You just need to be focusing on, I'm going to hit the ball hard somewhere, and and not think of all the things people have said to you, all the, you know, just the, even, you know, your coaches and things like that. In that moment, you just have to put into practice what you have been learning and what you've been practicing and kind of get your mind out of it. I've heard two real practical things, and when people have said, what do you do? One is uh, take a slow, deep breath, and then let your muscles relax. So like in baseball, they'll let their shoulders down. I saw Jock Peterson doing that in the World Series. So a real practical thing, take that big, deep breath, let it relax, and as you do so, your shoulders relax down. The other one I've heard is like if you're feeling that real anxiety that where you hold it in your chest, imagine there's a pressure valve, like an air release valve, and you push that pressure valve, and you literally kind of in your mind imagine that weight being left off your shoulders. So those are kind of some things I've heard right. people talk about. And, you know, it's really different for every athlete, right. and that's why it's helpful. That's why we encourage our athletes, hey, come in and talk to us, and we'll help you along the way kind of figure out what works best for you. And one of the things we constantly say to our clients is, you have to practice and practice. You can't just think in your mind, oh, I'm going to do this in a game and never practice it. You, you, when you get in a game, you're going to forget. You're not going to know. But it's just like any other skill that you're learning. When you practice it over and over and over, it becomes a part of what you do during your performance. And so if you're practicing relaxation and you know which kind of relaxation works for you, what your triggers are to make you think about I need to take a deep breath. I need to relax my muscles. If you've been practicing that in your practice, then it's going to come much more natural yeah. in your performance. Right, exactly. Hawk, you have a question for Tracy? Yeah, Tracy, I was just thinking about a real story to what you just said. You know, when, when I was with the Cowboys, they always talked about how Troy Aikman was always so serious, even in practice. They said every day he treated practice like the game and was almost kind of rude and bothersome to the rest of the people. They're like, come <laughs> on, man, we're just out here practicing. Practice. But you look at his Allen results, yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they actually – he took it serious like you said, and probably when he got to the game, it wasn't as tough for him, especially mentally. Obviously, physically, it's very tough. The The question I had for you is do you see an athlete's mental performance based on athlete to athlete, or do you think there's some position-specific sports that create higher anxiety like a you uh, Darvish versus like a, a Bellinger who struggled at the plate? Do you think hitter versus pitcher, or there's some – position-specific things you've seen in your career? I, I mean, I think definitely there's positions that lend itself. You know, if you think about it, you know, a pitcher, you realize, you know, you kind of feel the the burden of that game on your shoulders. Yeah. You kind of feel like, okay, if I'm off, this could be bad. If I'm on, you know, you kind of put that pressure on yourself. Whereas maybe someone in another position, you know, playing first base or second base or something, you know, a lot of what they do is quick reaction. Yeah. You know, they're 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 reacting to the ball coming their way. And so they don't have much time to really think about, oh, I'm going to screw this up or yeah. what if I'm good, what if I'm bad? They just have to react. And yeah, sometimes they might miss it or whatever, but I mean, that's just a part of the game whereas a pitcher just has a lot more thinking time. A hitter maybe has a lot more time just to yeah. think and to allow their thoughts to get in the way or allow the mental part of their game to help them and to be stronger in that position. Yeah, and then another part of that too is do you see a difference in like a like Dr. Dan talked about tennis a while ago, like an individual sport versus a team sports. What have you seen in the difference between individual versus team sports? Yeah, I mean it, it's definitely, you know, individual. Some people are just better at individual sports because 
they're not very good team players in the sense that they can easily get angered, you know, at someone that doesn't perform well or, you know, things. And that's not saying everybody that plays an individual sport does that. But there's just a different dynamic where sometimes in a team sport, you maybe, you know, maybe if you're a baseball player and you're called upon to make a sacrifice bunt or sacrifice hit or things like that, maybe – you know, you really want to try to hit the ball, but the, the, yeah. the coach is having you do something. You have to put your team first and think about your team and maybe make sort more sacrifices than if you were an individual sport. So there's still, though, you know, elite athletes especially, you're still just going to put tons of pressure on themselves no yeah. matter what. One of the things I really like to see now is that they also have these uh, programs where you can, like, put yourself in the situation by having the sounds of the game programmed in while you practice. Have you have you seen some of those? Yeah, in, in – and really, even uh, there's a there's a you know kind of movement in when you're looking at um, imagery, um, using imagery to help reduce anxiety and things right. like that. And so for a lot of athletes, hearing the sounds, maybe holding the ball, you know, holding a football if you're a football player, holding a bat if you're a baseball player, um, maybe even going out and sitting on grass and 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 using imagery to picture yourself in your game situations so that you um, can play over and over in your mind you know your mind has like a muscle memory your mind creates memories and so you don't want to relive horrible mistakes over and over if you make a mistake you want to learn from it but you don't want to relive it over and over in your mind you want to picture in your mind image imagine if you will the doing it the very best way that you can doing it perfectly so that becomes your muscle memory in your mind your mind is remembering that not the mistake not the negative right, you're not right. focusing on the negative and so definitely using game sounds or yeah. you know props or things like that can definitely help players we're talking to miss tracy munson she's a certified mental performance consultant we call her mental strength coach here at the forge abilene and uh, one of the things too uh, that kind of dovetails off that question about putting yourself in a game situation you know, the sounds of it and all those. As a parent and as a friend, oftentimes you feel a need to try and yell instructions to your kids while they're playing sports, whether it's soccer, baseball, basketball. I've seen a, a, a young kid pulled from the dugout to go do batting practice with his dad during a high school event. I mean, as well-meaning as those things are for a parent and a friend who's yelling instructions to the athlete, is it is it a benefit to the athlete or is it a detriment in your opinion? No, it's really typically not. A benefit. I mean, at that point, um, they're in their game. They're they're just going to play as the level that they're at right then. That they, they yeah. that extra instruction and people yelling things out. And really, if you pay attention, half the time, people are yelling out things that contradict each other. So yeah. you know, for the kid, he really just at that point needs to listen to his coach. And and the, it's better for the parents just encourage him and cheer him on. But yelling advice at that moment really you know, for most kids isn't really going to help them and, and especially not pulling them out of a game and trying to do something with them in the middle of the game. That, there's time for that the next week. By the way, practice. as a parent, when you yell, and this is, I could just remember this vividly as a uh, youngster, when you yell, don't drop your back shoulder. I go to the plate. What's the first thing I yeah, think of? Yeah, you're going to drop, drop your my back, back shoulder. shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, you know, that's one of our examples that we give to athletes just in their own self-talk is to not use the negative. Don't say don't. Yes. Yeah. Don't miss your serve. Don't yeah. strike out. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't. Because you hear the instruction that comes after the don't. You don't really hear the don't. We always say to our athletes, right now, don't think about a pink elephant. 
Well, immediately they kind of giggle because they think about a pink elephant. Yeah. And so trying to tell somebody don't in that moment only puts the instruction in their head of yeah. kind of what to do. Yeah. This is coming from a non-certified mental performance consultant myself. <laughs> when you yell don't strike out, that what the uh, batter hears is, I suck. That's yeah. just that's just my <laughs> unprofessional opinion, but that's what they hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's best just to be encouraging yeah. and just kind of go from there. Exactly. Hey, we just have a few seconds here. So if someone wants to come and uh, get a free mental strength evaluation, so you, I don't think you should wait until you have a, have an issue. Why not be proactive? There's things you can do to learn this stuff and make you a better athlete. If they want to get with you at the Edge Mental Strength, how do they uh, make that appointment? They get a free mental strength evaluation as part of that. How would they uh, come to find you? They can go online to mentalstrengthabilene.com and immediately there in the middle of the screen it says take the assessment now and that will shoot your results over to us and then we will contact you and you do not have to live in Abilene to do that. I have several clients that um, one from Phoenix and several that are from out of town that we just visit with on the phone and uh, do it that way and it definitely helps to be proactive. I can't tell you how many Athletes that are out of their sport have said, gosh, I wish I had something like this when I was, you know, in high school and think, you know, just learning these skills that can help me. Um, along the way as I go into high school and maybe even further. Everybody's always looking for an edge in sports. I would say mental strength coaching is the edge they're looking for most of the time because we focus on mechanics of the sport. We don't focus on the mental side right. of it, which is a huge component. If you want the edge for yourself or your kids, man, mental strength conditioning is the way to go. Call Tracy Munton, certified mental performance consultant. Get with her. The, the website again was mentalstrengthabilene.com. mentalstrengthabilene.com. Hey, we'll see you real on the other side of the short commercial break here on Docs and Jocks. By the way, perfect timing. We're going to go to our mental strength moment right now. As a mental strength coach, I'm asked many times about what it takes to help motivate an athlete or a team. Coaches and parents often want to know what they can do to help athletes reach deep within themselves and find the drive and desire to get better and to be the best. There are some athletes who are just naturally motivated to work hard and constantly practice. They seem to have an internal drive to push themselves to get better. However, there are a lot of athletes who don't necessarily have this innate drive and desire. These athletes have to find a way to motivate themselves and push themselves to do the work. I saw a quote recently that said, Motivation comes from looking at the things you want and realizing what it takes to get it. Here at the Edge Mental Strength Training, we work with athletes to realistically look at their goals and what it will take to reach them. Many times an athlete can be challenged or pushed to get better by realizing what they have to do to reach their dreams and honestly evaluating if they are willing to put in that work. If you would like to learn more about the Edge Mental Strength Training, you can reach us by clicking on our link at docsandjocks.com. This has been your Mental Strength Minute. You're listening to Docs and Jocks, brought to you in part by Abilene Sports Medicine, Hardin-Simmons University, and Lawrence Hall Chevrolet. Touchdown. Now back to more Docs and Jocks with Dr. Dan and Ferris. Hey, welcome back to Docs and Jocks, your sports medicine radio show. Thanks for being with us for the entire show. This is our last segment here on your sports medicine radio show. Uh, my co-host this week is Brandon Hawk. Hawk is the longtime Dallas Cowboy and Texas Tech Red Raider athletic trainer. Man, uh, Hawk, right now, while well, you're Red Raiders, how do you want to give us your update <laughs> on them? Give us uh, where you think they're headed for the season and kind of an overall gestalt. Uh, we, we Hopefully are, no more Iowa State's on the schedule. Oh, no joke. We are in like a must-win situation if Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury wants to keep his job. I mean, you know, we've been in some games. We Last week against OU, we played at – stellar first half scored put 20 points in the first quarter on OU 
and then didn't score one in the second half. I so know. tough to tough to uh, win games like that. But yeah, I think if we don't get a bowl game this year, the Cliff Kingsbury era might be over. Yeah, and I really um, like Coach Kingsbury too. If you ever want to listen to the interview we did with Coach Kingsbury, we had that on Docs and Jocks, where he was talking about his good longtime uh, mentor and friend, Coach Spike Dykes. Yeah. It's a great interview. Yeah, he he seems like you know he bleeds red and black, and he's doing everything he can. It's just uh, you don't have a a quarterback like you did last year, and the defense is so so. I mean, yeah, um, it's just it's just tough. But uh, they got a brand new indoor facility, one of the nicest in the country. So, (laughs) and uh, so baseball season's around the corner. So we've been the World Series the two out of the last five years. So. Uh, some positive things maybe coming it's, soon. It's never good when you're talking about football season. You immediately jump to uh, baseball's <laughs> right around the corner halfway through the season. So, yeah. One of the well, cool things I remember from that interview with Coach Kingsbury is Coach Spike Dykes told him when he got the job, Coach Kingsbury got the job, he told Coach Kingsbury, he goes, that's great, man. Plan on losing about 10% of your friends every year. And Coach Kingsbury, what, what does that mean? And then, you know, you have all this coaching turnover and you got to get rid of your assistant coaches who are your friends and then bring some in, which alienates some of the other ones. And he's like, yeah, he goes, I think I'm uh, beating that ratio of Spike Dykes. That was one of the things I forget. I remember about Coach Kingsbury's interview. Yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking the same thing because listening to you guys talk, he didn't seem as enthusiastic, passionate about coaching as he did when he first took over the program. You know, you come off coaching a Heisman quarterback in Johnny Manziel, one of the top coordinators in the country, then you realize this head coaching thing might be a little bit tougher than it, than it looks like. So yeah. Just uh, hopefully we can win out and possibly make a bowl game. But if not, I'm sure we'll be searching for a new coach. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, uh, one of the big interviews uh, that was uh, conducted this week and I thought had a really high sports medicine uh, component to it was the Tom Brady interview when they were talking to him about how long he felt like he could play professional football. And he's uh, I think there's one who did we say was the one uh, quarterback who took a snap older than him. It was a guy for the Raiders. Uh, he wore one bar across the front of his face. Can't remember his name. George Blanda. Yeah, there you go. George Blanda. Yeah, he. he used to, <laughs> I remember George Blanda only wore one bar across the front of his face. I don't know why I remember that, but uh, Tom Brady said he wanted to play until he's forty-five years old. And at first glance, you would say forty-five years old, a quarterback. That's crazy, man. But if anybody could do it, it's Tom Brady. And one of the things he attributed his longevity to, even to this point, and then hopefully in the future, is the fact that. He feels like his nutrition has, and taking care of his body has become such a big, high priority in his life that he feels so good that he doesn't see a reason why he couldn't play until he's 45 because he said his passion for the game has never dwindled. He's always been very passionate about playing football and loves the job he does, and he believes that if he takes care of his body and eats right, he will be able to play that long. It's, we talk about nutrition here a lot on Docs and Jocks and the importance of it. We've had the great Jill Lane on JillLane.com if you want to go to her website and find out more about her fueling uh, champions uh, website, but uh, that is key. I think if you're going to have a long, successful athletic career, you have to take care of your body. With starts with good energy and good food, substantiating your ability to play the sport you love. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, you know, we were looking at the article earlier, and he just said I attribute a lot of it to uh, laying off the uh, the frosted flakes and uh, no cokes. So I think I'm not sure that that's a recipe for success for uh, the all-time winningest quarterback or most Super Bowls in the NFL is laying off the frosted flakes and the cokes. But I'm sure we all know what he means by that. Yeah, <laughs> he's saying I'm not going to put junk food in and expect my body to run at a high energy level. Yeah. yeah. So you know what's crazy, Doctor Dan, is when I was involved in the NFL, there was a guy named 
Chad Ochocinco. Yeah. And he was the complete opposite of Tom Brady. And he's not in the NFL anymore, but yeah. he ate McDonald's two to three times a day. And he, he would show his six-pack abs and says, McDonald's doesn't kill people. Oh, and McDonald's man. is good nutrition. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Chad Ochocinco, his career was relatively short, right? Yeah, it was. I was saying, he's <laughs> I mean, no I mean, longer in him. I don't know if he's a great example of what – how you stated, and it was. Yeah, I think his career was shortened by injury, was it not? Yeah, he had he had a couple of knee injuries and stuff like that. So I'm sure. I'm not saying that's all due to nutrition, but I'm saying it didn't help, right? <laughs> that's the polar opposite. Yeah, Tom Brady's playing when he's 40 years old, playing at a high level, you know, and he's had injuries. But yeah, I don't know if Chad Ochocinco would okay, be the I'm great. Okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot yeah. here. Is it possible, in your opinion, for Tom Brady to be starting quarterback at the age of 50? He's a starting quarterback at age 40 now. Here's, here's what's called sarcopenia. So let's just talk about aging and the natural course of aging, right? So you, use, you lose, on average, about 1% of your muscle mass per year as part of the normal aging process. So it is, it, do you have to lose muscle mass? No, because you can add muscle mass throughout your year by doing resistance training. So it's why you see guys like oh, Dr. Jeffrey Life, you know, the guy that does the, does the uh, book uh, – uh, Oh, what's it? life's in the name. I can't remember. Life plan. But you see guys who are in their 70s who are very strong, very, you know, six-pack abs, and it's because they have limited that sarcopenia. So, but the natural course is in 10 years from now, where Tom Brady is now, he'll be 10% less strong than he is right now if he just stays the same, which means he would have to increase his muscle mass by 10% above that to be able to maintain that. So you naturally lose some of your quickness. I do know that as I've aged, the things that I've noticed is I don't have that quick first step anymore. Yeah. But Tom Brady doesn't really – he's not a running quarterback, right? If Tom Brady, if you're counting on him to have a quick first step, you're probably going to have a poor year because he's not yeah. going to get outside the pocket. He's, a, he's a inside the pocket, drop back, make a quick read, get the ball out of his hands quick so he doesn't get hit. Yeah. That's Tom Brady. So could he still do that in 10 years? Very possible. I just don't think that he'll be – he'll lose some of the quick twitch ability he has. He'll be a little bit little bit weaker. I don't see him being around at age 50, though I would like to see a guy do that. It would be really cool. Satchel Paige, you know, pitched, they believe, almost until he was in his 50s in baseball. Wow. But so, but the problem with Satchel Paige, he didn't know his birth date. He has a famous saying, if you didn't know how old you were, how old would you be? So, but they think he pitched until his fifties. <laughs> so there have been guys that have done it, but you know it's it's rare, rare. Get, could I see Tom Brady going to forty five where he's at with forty right now? Probably, man. We're going to see more and more of that because the days of when Doug English came on our radio show and he said back in the seventies it was a badge of honor if you held drank a lot of beer, smoked a lot of cigarettes, uh, stayed up late at night, partied hard, and uh, didn't take care of yourself it was a badge of honor. And he even he said that that shortened my career. Those days are gone. These guys taking care of themselves. Yeah, you'll see them lasting longer. So, no, I can see guys starting to last longer in the uh, in Major League Baseball, Major or NFL, and Major and uh, NBA. But you know, fifties getting pretty tough. You're starting to fight Mother Nature a little bit too much. Yeah, I think uh, Herm Edwards was on earlier in the week talking about this exact thing, and he said, not he said, I do know Tom Brady will play a little bit longer, but he will soon fall off the cliff. And he pretty much was saying that I don't care how good you are, you know, there's just this time where age is going to catch up to you regardless of what you're doing in yeah. life. So he uh, 
he definitely uh, thought that Tom Brady was not going to make it another five to ten years. That you know he's going to take a hit here pretty soon, and his body's not going to be able to hold whatever it is that he's taking on a week to week basis in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to see it. It'd be fun to see a, a healthy Tom Brady tearing it up at fifty four. Speaking from one fifty year old, you know, I mean, that'd be pretty cool, you know. That yeah. is awesome. Yeah, he, every every old man out there right now is rooting for Tom Brady to <laughs> to do his thing. So, yeah. The other injury in the news right now is Colts put Andrew Luck under season-ending IR following a rotator cuff surgery in January uh, to his throwing arm. He tried to practice in October. He had to have a corticosteroid injection, which did not work. So what he had was um, he had basically a rotator cuff, which is the muscles that surround the ball in your shoulder. They have to stabilize the shoulder when it moves. They're called dynamic stabilizers. So there's four of them. You've got your supraspinatus, your infraspinatus, your subscapularis, and your uh, teres minor. Those muscles are all the muscles that stabilize the shoulder. So when he goes to throw and he goes overhead with his arm, he has to move that humeral head in the socket, and those muscles stabilize. When you start getting fraying of that, of those tendons, you start having injuries of that, that's what the surgery had. They go in there and give him some more space. In other words... They are trying to give him the ability to move the ball and the socket without having pinching of the rotator cuff. And uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, his has been, been taking longer than typical to get better. And when he tried to go back, he had recurrence of his pain. The shot that they do is, is a, called a subacromial uh, corticosteroid injection where you go into the space between the ball and the roof of the shoulder. So there's a ball moving in a socket, and above that there's a roof called your acromion. And underneath your acromion, so that's why they call it subacromial injection, you put some medicine in there to soothe the bursa, the inflamed tissue, to try and take some of that pain away. So the Colts finally just said, hey, enough's enough. We tried to get him back in October. He's not able to come back. We're just going to put him on seizing-ending IR. He's done. And I don't know if it's more of his shoulder being a problem or they're just saying, hey, this season is a loss. And let's save him, make sure he's healthy for next year. I don't know which it is, but they finally threw in the towel. Yeah, I think we talked about this week after week on the show, Dr. Dan, but the quarterback, the starting quarterback for each team is very valuable. And when you get to a point where you don't know the name of the number two or three guy, yeah, yeah. it's a little concerning. And as far as rotator cuff injuries, let's get, let's get to that for a second. What – what is all entailing when a surgeon is actually going in and repairing the rotator cuff and kind of talk about the return to play rehab process? Yeah, there's two parts to it. One is when they go in, they look at the rotator cuff. Usually they go in first with a scope, and so they'll go in and they'll look with a small little camera. And they'll, they, it's very difficult on an MRI to see exactly what you see in real life, all the injuries. So they'll look to see how bad the tear is in the rotator cuff, which muscles are involved, how severe the fraying is, what do they need to repair, if it's a large rotator cuff that they feel like they can't repair through the scope, then they'll go in and make an open incision and repair it openly. They will also usually, like I talked about, go in and decompress. In other words, shave off the bottom of the roof of the shoulder. So to give yourself some, give it, give it some more room. Sometimes they'll even remove part of the uh, distal clavicle. There's areas where they can open up the space to give the rotator cuff some more room. The problem with rotator cuff surgeries and shoulder surgeries in general with an overhead throwing athlete is the, state, the joint is so inherently unstable to start with. In other words, it's a great big ball sitting in a little bitty cup, yeah. and you're trying to stabilize it. And so when you start doing surgery on it, it gets really tricky as far as how to get that joint moving the same way it was and before it was injured without having some problems down the road. It's much less predictable to do a surgery on a shoulder than maybe, say, a hip or a knee, which is a much more intrinsically, inherently stable structure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you... Uh 
you see so many people think, oh, it's just a surgery. He'll be back in a few months because yeah. you see all these guys. I hope coming, he is, yeah, coming back from knee surgery. The Adrian Petersons of the world, you know, whoever it might be that week. But so you, everyone's like, wait a minute, he had surgery a long time ago and he's not back, which is probably more normal for the normal population, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So whenever you see one guy, the uh, Jerry Rice is trying to come back two or three months after an ACL, and you're like. Those are the outliers, right? Yeah. So you can typically have a normal window of time. And it was shoulders. I used to work with an excellent shoulder surgeon named Dr. Rick Levy. In fact, we need to get him on the show. And he would tell patients, you know, when I do a rotator cuff repair, you know, I really expect you, it's a period of months before you're even somewhat glad you've had it done. It may be up to a year before you're fully glad you had it done. So yeah. the rehab process in the shoulder surgery is much bigger process. It takes a lot more time to really fully know where you're going to end up, and it's, a, it's an extensive program just because you're really relying on a lot of soft tissues to stabilize a joint, which can be tough. Hey, Hawk, I think here in our last few minutes, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. You are the uh, general manager of the Forge Abilene, which is a sports training facility. That's your other hat you wear here. You're not just the producer of Docs and Jocks. We like to give Hawk a lot of hats here. <laughs> so you're the uh, general manager of the Forge Abilene, the sports training facility. Tell our listening audience, for those who don't know what the Forge is, it's formerly known here in Abilene as D1 Abilene. We changed recently name to yeah. the Forge. We're now locally, completely 100% locally owned. We're not a franchise. But tell people, our listening audience, what the Forge Abilene uh, is, is all about. So we're one of the few facilities in West Texas that actually has an entire sports medicine team or sports team involved. We have uh, sports training along with your medical practice and then physical therapy. The, the sports training facility specializes in adult training. Uh, we have high-intensity interval training. Uh, we have in a weight room that we do uh, strength workouts as well, kind of more of a conventional deal. But uh, we love uh, to help adults, uh, youth, uh, really reach their goals, and we do that in a not only a physical way, but a mental, spiritual way, kind of grow the complete athlete. And here at the Forge, Coach Hess' big philosophy is everyone is an athlete. We bring the athlete out in you, and whether that's your 40 years old, never worked out, or you know young 20s, never worked out, or worked out in high school, college, but haven't haven't seen the gym in a while. So if someone wants to find out about the Forge Abilene, how do they do that? What's the website they go to? They to get go free to uh, www.theforgeabilene.com and just click right there, fill out your information for free trial, and uh, we would love to get in contact with you and help with your uh, goals that you have for your own self. So theforgeabilene.com, free trial, all ages, ages 7 to 70. Come try it out. Man, it's a small group setting with a coach at every visit. It's a great, great way to work out. We'd love to have you do it as a free trial and see if maybe we can keep you you playing until you're age 45 like the Tom, great Tom yes. Brady said he's going to do. So, hey, from all of us here at Docs and Jocks, I want to say thank you to all our wonderful listeners. Say thank you to all our wonderful guests today, including former Major League Baseball player and manager Jim Snyder, uh, physical therapist Ashley Blakely, and the lovely Miss Tracy Munton, uh, certified mental performance uh, coach. I want to say thank you to my Hawk, my uh, producer here at Docs and Jocks. And uh, we'll see you next week from myself, Dr. Dan, and all of us at Docs and Jocks. Have a great week. We'll see you on Docs and Jocks next week.